You're listening to How to Do Everything. 17 years ago, a ship bound for New York was uh, carrying Legos across the Atlantic, and it was hit with a big wave and dropped a giant container uh, of the Legos overboard. And ever since that storm, Legos from that container have been washing ashore in Cornwall, which is in England. Curtis Ebesmeyer studies ocean currents and how things like Legos travel through them. So, Kurt, you, you heard about this uh, crate of Legos going overboard uh, pretty early on in the story. What did what, you do when you heard? Yeah, I've been following it for 17 years, ever since the five million fell overboard in a box off Land's End in 1997. So I quick emailed the uh, Lego company, and they sent me a sample of each one of the 100-piece kinds in the box. So I knew that uh, I knew which ones would float. <laughs> so, so how far had the Legos traveled? Well, see, let's do a little math. Uh, 17 years times uh, 7 miles a day times 365 days a year gives enough time to go around the planet a couple times maybe. <laughs> really? So so how far away are these Legos showing up now uh, in the 17 years since those containers went overboard? Well, that... Uh, uh, just a slight correction, it was one container holding five million individual pieces. So the question is, uh, and it's a very perceptive one, uh, how do we know where they went? And the point is, there's so many Lego on the beaches that nobody really understands uh, how to differentiate these Legos from the thousands of other kinds of Legos. So I get pictures of Lego all the time, but they're not the right Lego. So the only pictures I have of, of Lego that are actually the Lego are right around Cornwall, because they know, they know the the right the right stuff wait so so legos are washing up on beaches all the time all the time worldwide because you know lego is pretty popular and and uh, kids like to go to the beach with their lego but they forget some and some gets buried in the sand and other people find them so there's lego on beaches all everywhere but but the point is these legos fell overboard in uh 1997 and lego that year made something like 1900 different uh species you know these are these are little spear guns little diver flippers little uh, aqua lungs little uh, yellow life rafts so um they're to the trained eye they're pretty unmistakable but to most people a lego is just a block with little uh little bumps on it wait wait are you saying the 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 lego showing up on the beach from the spill at sea are nautical themed Yes, they're, they were. Ironically, I guess the ocean wanted to have fun with uh, marine adventures, so the, these particular Legos were designed for marine adventures. <laughs> really? So what it looks like, it looks like there was some Lego disaster at sea and that uh, a Lego ship with its crew capsized. It has that feel to it. <laughs> so, Kurt, do all, so, these, do all these Legos float, or are there, are there other Legos out there? That's a very good question. Uh, Lego, as I mentioned, Lego sent me a, a sample of each of the hundred different types of pieces. And I threw them in my bathtub, and I found out that only 63 out of the hundred types would float. So I did the math, and it worked out to be about 3 million individual Lego pieces would uh, bubble to the surface. Oh, just, just based on the percentage of what floated in your bathtub? Exactly. So, Kurt, what were the Legos that uh, sank to the bottom? Well, I don't really keep those in mind. Um, the story is 17 years old, but what's happened, it looks like the container had a hole in it, and it keeps burping little uh, batches of Legos that wash up around Cornwall every year or two. And so 
I'm waiting for the whole batch to really come out, and um, when that happens, we're going to see a whole, uh, going to see millions, because I, I would guess only a hundred thousand or so have ever surfaced. So there's still a container down there full of Legos waiting for the doors to open. Wow! So really, these Legos—it wasn't like this container like fell off, was wide open. Legos were pouring out. There's just a hole in the container that's allowing little bits of Legos to come out. That's the image I have. Uh, I've seen lots of pictures of, of uh, container disasters, and when containers go overboard, and, and this particular ship lost 60, 60 at one time, they bang into each other, and, you know, those steel corners uh, puncture holes in each other, and so that I think what happened is one of the containers just got a, a puncture wound. So maybe I don't understand, but do you, do you know exactly where this container of these Legos that's slowly disintegrating. Do you know where that container is? I'm not sure if that diving, if the divers have done that or not, because containers, when they go overboard, will float for a while, and then they'll go go down. So it's, I suspect it's not known. Is Does that, I mean, can anyone go down there and claim that container, or is it still considered the property <laughs> of Lego? You're very perceptive, because that's the first time that question's been asked, to me anyway. Uh, those the Legos that come up are pristine. You could put them on a toy shelf and probably sell them as antique Lego now. Well, if you were to if you were to consider you know all the treasure that's on the bottom of the ocean around the world, where do you think the Lego cash would would rank in ter- in terms of value? Oh, let's see. I don't know. Well, just for the sake of argument, call it a dollar a Lego. And maybe there's $3 million down there. So just call it order of a million dollars. And there have been uh, treasure on the bottom of the ocean right off North Carolina. The, the ship of gold um, was a whole boatload of gold minted in San Francisco and went around the Horn and sank off North Carolina. It's still down there. They're arguing over who owns the gold, but that's that's billions, multi-billions. So this this Lego spill is probably, you know, pretty pretty small change compared to what treasure hunters will really go after. Huh. I'm just trying to figure out if we could build something with the sunken Legos to help us get the gold off the coast of South Carolina. <laughs> well, let's see. When when something's worth billions of dollars. There are some pretty powerful eyes that are watching. So when you go out on the ocean and dive for treasure, it's people people notice you. It's pretty obvious that somebody's out there doing something. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. Well, thanks for talking to us oh. about the Lego, Kurt. Oh, sure, Ian. Thanks, Mike, too. And I, uh, it's been fun. It's a, it's a continuing saga. We heard from Lisa. Lisa says she listens to How to Do Everything while doing seed art. Uh, I have no idea what seed art is. Uh, we need to learn more about this. Lisa, can you tell us what is seed art? Sure. There's a competition at the Minnesota State Fair. for. It's actually called crop art or seed art, but crop art. And um, you take seeds. Um, they have to be crops that can be grown in Minnesota. Um, okay. And you apply them to a board in a pattern or in the form of whatever picture you're trying to replicate, and you enter it in the competition. So it's kind of like mosaic uh, using seeds. Yeah. What yeah. kind of what kind of seeds are you using? We use uh, big 
seeds like can be like pumpkin seeds um, down to tiny, tiny seeds like poppy seeds oh. and anywhere, anything in between. So what um, what's the art like? The, the blue ribbon I won, I, I did a stand-up gnome. And other time I did a portrait of my dog with a cone on her head after she had surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, this, uh, the portrait of your dog, uh, let's, yeah. let's say, how, so how big was the portrait? Eight by ten. And how many seeds does it take to make that? Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm really bad with numbers. I'm better with art, so it's hard to say, but you'd have to say thousands and thousands. Wow. What, how long did it take, say? Um, that one probably took me maybe 20 hours start to finish. The, the one that I'm working on right now is a, um, a rooster at night, and it's kind of starry, starry night looking. And this thing I've been working on for a really long time, like, I don't know, at, at least 60 hours by now, I think, and I'm not done. Wow. Someone who paints is a painter. Someone who sculpts is a sculptor. Are you, what, are you a cedar? I don't know. I've never tried to call myself something like that. I can't, like, lately I've just been saying I'm going to go chicken now, so. <laughs> you're going to go chicken because you're, yeah. you're making a chicken? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Lisa, these next 15 seconds are for you. Ah, thanks, guys. So I, I, looking at these, uh, and you you can see them uh, on our website, howtodoeverything.org. Looking at these, uh, this is like a very sophisticated version of like macaroni art. Yeah. I, I wonder what would happen if you planted this. I, I think it would actually um, grow a, a, a dog with, with one of these collars. The first farm in, in the United States devoted to growing crickets just opened in Ohio. And the, these aren't bait crickets. They're for humans to eat. On the line with us now is Clay Gann. His family has been raising crickets for both bait and human consumption uh, in Georgia for years. Clay, can you describe your farm for us? Sure. It's, um, it's really not what most people think, uh, what most people envision when they find out or they hear the words cricket farm. But we sit on, uh, our complex sits on about six acres of land. We have buildings covering a little more than half of that. And inside these big warehouse-type buildings, we have metal racks on which we have stacked these big, long plastic tubs that we call brooders. It's basically about the size and shape of a bathtub. And that provides a crawling space and living area for the crickets. We have a couple of jars of water in there and a couple of big plates of feed. They eat, drink, and be merry, and off we go. How many crickets uh, total on your farm at, at any given time? Oh, gosh, at any one point in time. Uh, the, our current production model, we're probably running about uh, between, and do some quick math, probably between 18 and 20 million at any one snapshot in time. So what is it, uh, you know, if you have 18, 20 million crickets, what does it sound like at your farm? What? Can't hear you. <laughs> oh, just kidding. I love that one. Um, it, you can hear it. They do make some noise, obviously. But I tell people it's like living next to a freeway. You know, and you first move there and your window's open, you hear all the cars and traffic going by, and it kind of annoys you. But after you've been there a little while, 
it just becomes like a you know a background noise that you don't even notice anymore. Now, from from time to time, you'll hear about uh, a farmer, maybe a more traditional livestock farmer, uh, getting attached to an animal. Maybe they they there's a pig that they just can't bear to slaughter. Does that ever happen with a cricket? I have so far uh, been able to dodge that bullet. Yeah. I have not become emotionally attached to any of my crickets. No. You haven't ever named a cricket. Uh, I don't think I have. Chirpy, nothing like that? <laughs> no, I don't think so. For one thing, the life cycle is so short. They only live about six weeks, so, you know, it'd be fairly traumatic if I really got attached to one. And, uh, you know, when he's a teenager, which would be at about the three-week, you know, age mark, and then three weeks later he's died of old age. Just think of the of the trauma and pain and stress I would have to go through. So, now nah, I'm going I'm to steer clear of that. Yeah. An emotional roller coaster. It would be, wouldn't it? I'd be eating Prozac like M&M's. So, Clay, do, do you ever have it where uh, some crickets uh, escape their pen and you have to round them up? You know, we did. We, at times, of, certain times of the year, especially when we're in the fish bait market, we would have uh, surplus production, just simply more crickets than, than we could sell in a given week. And when they're an adult fishing cricket, when they become adults, we'd only have about a three- or four-day window in which to sell that cricket and it'd still be a good livable cricket. If, you know, way beyond that, it'd get too old and it was going to die on the customer, so we couldn't sell them. So we'd have to just throw them away. And, and we've got a fish pond. I've got some land out in the country, and we take them out there and dump them in the pond and feed the fish. Well, one day here comes this lady who lives around the corner knocking on the door, this sweet elderly lady. And she said, I, I've got crickets all in my house. They don't know what's happening. They're everywhere. And I talked to Bill, my plant manager, he said, yeah, the other day, uh, some we dumped in there, we spilled a barrel before we got to the big hole that we dug, and uh, they kind of ran off on us, you know, so here's 150, 200,000 crickets running through the neighborhood. <laughs> so the old lady's kind of, you know, distraught, and I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm so sorry, I apologize. Let me call an exterminator. I will send him to your house. I'll take care of it. I, I, just, I really apologize. So I did that, and uh, everything was good for about three days. And then another lady shows up at the door. My name is Betty Sue. My friend Laura next door had some crickets in her house, and I've got some, too. Could you send that exterminator over here? Yes, ma'am, I'd be glad to. I sure will. So the next two weeks or so, I think I had every lady uh, who was in the bridge club, I guess, <laughs> at her house, you know, this exterminator to go. I think I had the whole neighborhood done before it was over with. <laughs> and we learned our lesson. We don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> So, so Clay, there's a lot of talk about uh, the domestic market for eating crickets, using crickets as food. Is that something you guys are doing? Yeah, we are a little bit. Um, in the last uh, three or four years, that, that market has been getting some legs under it, no pun intended. Um, there are a few customers we have who purchase uh, crickets from us and then have them processed into a powder, like a flour, a cricket flour, I guess they call it. And then they, in turn, sell to a few other companies who are making various protein bars or, you know, chips or uh, different things, burp, you know, patties like a hamburger. Mm. Well, so when you eat, when you eat crickets, how, how do you like to prepare them? I just bite the head off and just suck the juice right out of the neck. And, <laughs> no, that's not true. Well, uh, thanks for talking to us about crickets, Clay. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. You know what? We should try a cricket taste test. We should try some food made with crickets. 
We're going to bring in our official taster, Peter Sagal, to try some cricket snacks. He does not know that there is cricket in some of the things he's eating. In fact, he has no idea what we're doing here. He didn't know that we just talked to Clay. All he knows is there are plates with different snacks on them. And we'll, uh, we'll give you a little auditory indication when uh, Peter is eating cricket-based foods. Okay, so here we're going to get started. All right. Well, we have our uh, we have our taste tester here. How you doing, Peter? I'm all right, guys. How are you? Pretty good. Yeah. So we have a couple things we want you to try. Mm-hmm. You ready? Oh, I've never been more ready. Okay. Well, here is a plate of cookies. Yes. There, you'll notice uh, it's it's clear there are two types of cookies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess take a bite from each. Yeah. I should say that these cookies are on a little plate that has been marked A and B. All right. Here we go. So this is this is an A cookie. Okay. Sounds good. Oh, yeah. That's a fine cookie. A little crumbly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Moving on to cookie B. Not as good. Less it's, um, chewier, not as light and crumbly, and um, much less sweet. In fact, it might be... Here, let me have another bite. Yeah, that is... I would not... I'm going to put that cookie down. Okay. And not choose okay. to eat that again. It's not a disgusting cookie which is what I expect coming in with you guys. But no, it is no, not okay. a good cookie. So that was cookie, the larger cookie, cookie A, yes. better. Yes. Cookie B, not, not good so at all. Good. No, I would not eat that cookie. And I'll eat almost anything, as you guys know. Should we move to the bars? Yeah, let's... Uh, all right. Okay. So again, they're labeled A and B. A and B. Let's take a bite of each. And, and again, we're looking at little rectangular bars. It's uh, an a. energy bar. All right. Hmm. That's not terrible. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've had energy bars that are much worse. That's fine. I'm trying number B. Chewier. Um, gooier. Not as tasty. Mm. Not as tasty. No. Is it not as sweet? It is definitely not as sweet. Um, and certainly is not as toothsome. I would not eat that. You wouldn't choose to eat If that. I hadn't been, once again, lured into the studio. Forced. Yes. Well, d- do you want to guess which, and it's the same in each one, yeah. A or B, which uh, is made with crickets? Crickets. So, like, bugs, insects. That's what the B stands for, is bugs. Bugs. Arthropods, you're saying. Yep. I would say B. B yeah. is, yeah, bug, bug food. Now, you seem mad. I'm not mad. I'm 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 befuddled. I'm I I feel um, I feel hurt a little bit. I didn't expect to be eating insects today. I feel like you could have warned. I should. Now, I now understand the smiles prior to the bug food. Well, thank you, Peter. You know, I'd say it's my pleasure, but this time maybe not. We don't blame you. No. Sorry. It's all right. That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? You know, uh, think about eating crickets and how traditionally they're grown as bait. Right. Is it possible that uh, the cricket farmer was just trying to catch us? That they, they still are bait? They're just human bait? He just, he likes some, he's got his hook into us because we, we tried his cricket food. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, as, as somebody who eats fish, I guess the, the tables have kind of have turned. I hope I'm I hope I'm human and chips. I really like human and chips. 
I I learned that that the ocean off the coast of England is as riddled with Legos as my house is. Yeah. You know, parents always talk about stepping on Legos. I imagine the mermaids get pretty annoyed with that, too. Do you think Ariel, the little mermaid, like the minute she got feet, the first thing she did was step on a Lego? Which is like, damn it! How to Do Everything is produced by us with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Seth Kelly. I think he's still our intern. I don't know where he is. He's actually lost at sea. Did you hear about that container that was filled with five million sets? Our artist in residence is Justin Witte. You can send us your questions at howto at npr.org. Our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian Chillog. And I'm Mike Danforth. This is NPR. <laughs>